Well, hello, hello. It is good to see you again, and welcome back to Closing Arguments. I am your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff. It's great to be back with you all today here as we kickstart our season two on the show. We appreciate everybody for their comments, their feedback throughout the course of season one and a successful season one at that. Uh, and of course, as always on the show, I'm going to be joined by my right-hand man, and that's the star of our show, Mr. John Razumich, or Jack Razumich, as many know him by in the greater Indianapolis area. And that's John Razumich of Razumich and Associates. And we're going to be diving into more criminal law related discussions here on the show. If you joined us in season one, you know that we covered a lot. We went into some different case studies. We went into different, you know, hot topics or hot button issues throughout the, the realm of criminal law. Jack provided his insights on the matter and we left it up for a lot of questions, a lot of interpretation, a lot of dialogue with our audience. And we really hope to keep doing that as we move through here in season two. Now, today, We've got a really interesting topic that we're going to cover to kickstart the season. Really, we're diving into juvenile law in Indiana. You know, so many of us, we view the law from our adult lens, but oftentimes we don't understand the full circumstances surrounding juvenile law as a whole. We'll probably put some misconceptions to bed here on the episode today, maybe answer a few questions you might have looming in your head, but a lot of good stuff lies ahead. But before we get into the topic at hand, let's go ahead and say hi to the man of the hour, Jack Rasmus. Jack, it's good to see you this morning. How are you doing? Doing, sir. Hey, Ryan, it's great to be back. It feels like it's been forever. I know. I know. It's good to good to be going. I know we had a lot of positive feedback from the audience on the show, and, and we're excited to get things rolling here in season two. Uh, Jack, you know, I think a good place for us to start is kind of from that high level, you know, in, in terms of talking about juvenile law as a whole. Why don't you just frame it up just in terms of the noun itself? What is juvenile law, generally speaking? At its most basic concept, juvenile law is the legal system that deals with anyone under the age of majority in the relevant jurisdiction that you're in. The idea is that uh, we treat children differently than we do adults, and uh, that should also carry over into the legal system and the way that we handle uh, the way that we deal with, uh, with bad acts, uh, acts that would be considered criminal if they were an adult, acts of just general... Uh, juvenile delinquency. Um, so we have a separate system that's set up in the United States. A lot of other countries do also. Um, I know France has a system that's very, very unique to them. Uh, but definitely in the United States, we have our own separate criminal justice system that deals specifically with issues that just focus on minors and acts that they would have committed that that would be criminal if they were adult if they were adult acts. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes makes all the sense in the world. But take us back to its inception, Jack. Where where along the line did we start realizing, hey, you know what, maybe we should be disciplining, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, minors and going through a juvenile, the, you know, creating a system for juveniles as opposed to adults and, and truly drawing that line in the sand between an adult and a child. It's actually kind of a fascinating history uh, that really comes about with the reform movement of the late 19th century and early 20th century. Uh, historically, juveniles who broke the law were considered to be full adults and were punished the same way. Um, back in the Middle Ages, for example, and carrying through uh, forwards, children, if they had reached the age of at least six, were considered to be fully functional and responsible members of their households. Uh, there are reports of children as young as 10 being hanged for piracy on the high seas back during the golden age of pirates. Um, the reform movements in the United States in the late 19th century that really kind of restructured 
how we view the family system and how we view the various roles of people in society kind of led to the concept that maybe we shouldn't be treating juveniles or children as adults. And when you couple that with the um, compulsory education laws that came about in the second half of the 19th century from about World War II onwards, that really also significantly helped to um, kind of set in this idea that we'll give juveniles who are still growing uh, an opportunity to not be treated as harshly as adults. Um, the, the very first juvenile court in the United States actually uh, opened its doors on July 1st of 1899 in Chicago, Illinois. It was referred to as the Illinois Juvenile Court Law. Um, and that was, again, that was a big booster from the Chicago Women's Club, which were one of the big reform groups that were there. So uh, that's, that's basically how we developed that in the United States. Sure, sure. And then let's get into the why now, uh, you know, really the philosophy behind this, the establishment of it. Why did we come to this understanding that juveniles should be treated differently than adults? Because like you said, in, in early times, uh, you know, a child could be punished for the same act that an adult would be punished for. So where, where and why did we come up with the idea that we should be treating them differently? Again, it, it's very much part of that reform movement. Um, the 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 restructuring of the concept of what we would now consider to be the nuclear family, uh, as we understand it in the post World War II era, part of the Industrial Revolution changed what we required people to do at that time. That's that's why you would see uh, a lot of legislation in the early 20th century regarding getting kids out of mines and getting them into schools. Um, there was a less of an agrarian movement the, the the world was was urbanizing. So that's, again, your genesis of it. Realistically, as we've moved on, uh, what we found over the years, of course, uh, with the advancements in, in, uh, in sciences and biology and things of that nature, um, the human brain, I think, the, I think the current scientific consensus right now is that the human brain doesn't really stop forming until you're about 23 years old. So given the significant changes, uh, chemical, hormonal, all that that happens with, with juveniles, the idea that you're going to take a person who's in their teens, whose, whose body and brain is, is a chemical wash right now, and you're going to hold them to the same responsibility that we would what we consider to be a fully functional adult. I've obviously met some adults that, that have not quite reached that point yet, but you know, uh, the laws <laughs> are all about bright lines. We have to draw them somewhere, but the idea <laughs> that we're going to take someone that we know medically is not emotionally mm -hmm. or, or mentally capable of, of understanding these consequences. Um, you know, we want to try to give them the opportunity to not be branded. You know, when you're young, that's the opportunity to make these silly mistakes and make these stupid decisions. It doesn't make it okay. You know, there's no age where it's okay to throw a brick through a window. But if you do that when you're 16, there's a little bit more of an awareness of like, all right, you know, you're young and you're dumb. That's what happens with that. You know, if you're 32 and throwing a brick through right. a window, the idea is like, okay, look, dude, you really, really need to have learned your lesson long before now. You know, mm -hmm. absolutely. So that's that's yeah. kind of no, why we, good. yeah, that's why we have that distinction. That's, that's effectively what it is. 
Sure, sure. And I want to double click one step further now uh, and go even even younger, you know, into the kind of an infancy, if you will. Talk to me about where infancy comes into play when we're looking at law related to juveniles and, and any defenses surrounding infancy. Sure. The, the defense of infancy, it's kind of one of those really good archaic concepts in the law. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't no one refers to it as the defense of infancy anymore because of of how we've codified things and taken all the fun old terms out of the law. Um, but the idea of the defense of infancy is that you are too young to face consequences for your actions. And that kind of cuts really to the heart of what the juvenile system does as far as what they have jurisdiction over. So on the first hand, the jurisdiction of the juvenile court is is limited to um, another, a bright line test as far as age is concerned for most situations. So um, in 44 states, the maximum age for juvenile court jurisdiction is 17. That means that in 44 states, anyone 17 or below starts in the juvenile court system. There are a couple of exceptions to that. Georgia, Michigan, Missouri, Texas, and Wisconsin cap their juvenile jurisdiction at the age of 16. North Carolina has a maximum age of 15 as far as their juvenile jurisdiction is concerned. So the defense of infancy at the first most surface level is the ability to not be charged as an adult. You know, you are considered to be legally not chargeable as an adult. That's your infancy. There are a couple of situations where... There are also what are referred to as minimum ages. So that's your second concept of a defensive infancy. The idea being that you're too young to be held responsible anywhere. And that's not really a uniform thing anywhere. Um, When we were looking as part of our research for the show, uh, we did find a handful of states that had minimum ages uh, before you could be held legally responsible in, in a juvenile court. North Carolina had a minimum age of six to be held responsible in a juvenile court. Uh, Connecticut, New York, and Maryland had an age of seven. Texas, Vermont, and Wisconsin set a minimum age of 10. And then California had the highest minimum age at 12, which uh, with the exception for murder and rape. So basically, if you are under the age of 12 in California, unless you're accused of murdering or raping someone, they legally cannot hold you responsible anywhere. So that's your second aspect of the defensive infancy. The first aspect is, can you be held responsible at the same level as an adult? And then the mm-hmm. second is, is there anywhere that can be held responsible? Sure. Um, and those were the only states that I was able to locate during my research that had a minimum age as far as uh, liability. I think that the other mm-hmm. states, the, the conclusion I draw from that is the other states kind of just do a case by case analysis, make the determination uh-huh. as to, okay, you know, this, this seven year old knew that it was wrong to, you know, shoot up a house, we'll hold them responsible for it. Or, you know, other ones mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, well, this 10 year old is special needs and doesn't know what's going on. We're not going to hold them responsible. So it's a, it's a very sure. flexible concept on that. Sure, sure, and and given the nature and the chaos surrounding uh, you know kids as a whole, oh, you uh, I can com- totally understand why you would want to be flexible in, right. in that realm. But given your research, though, Jack, on on other states and how they've implemented, I want to zoom now further and spend the the latter part of the show talking about Indiana specifically. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Raz mentioned Associates. You guys serve the greater Indianapolis area as well as the whole state of Indiana. So naturally, that's your realm of expertise. Let's talk about it from a high level, and then we can kind of get into the weeds a little bit. How in in the grand scheme of things, in your eyes, how does juvenile law 
differ from adult law in the state of Indiana? The single most important difference between the two is that in the state of Indiana, juvenile adjudications, which is what the formal term is for a juvenile proceeding in Indiana, are considered to be civil proceedings, not criminal proceedings. And in fact, um, all juvenile cases in the state of Indiana are captioned in the matter of X, a child alleged to be delinquent as opposed to with the adult court where it's the state of Indiana versus X and they're being charged directly with violating a state law. So that's the first and most significant change that you see with regards to the difference between the juvenile system and the adult system in Indiana is your juvenile cases are considered to be civil. They're, they're not actually criminal. They have a lot of the same elements of criminal law you can still be punished like you could in the criminal law, but officially they're not considered to be criminal adjudications. They're not criminal actions. They're completely civil in nature. Roger that, Jack. Now, I want to look at the jurisdiction side of it. Now, uh, what would you say are maybe some of the limitations when it comes to jurisdiction for the juvenile court specifically in Indiana? What, what does that look like? Well, we did start uh, with, a, with a discussion a moment ago. There is a hard cap on the age of 17 for jurisdiction over uh, juvenile matters. And that doesn't matter if you're still in school or if you're out of school or what have you. We have represented 18-year-olds, for example, who were still in high school who had to take time out of their school schedule to go to court because they got charged with something like possession of marijuana or drunk driving or battery. So that's the first jurisdictional issue right there is it's a hard cap on 17. If you're over 17, you go straight to the adult court. Beyond that, um, the general idea is that all charges should start in the juvenile system. There are some exceptions to that. There are some, there are some cases that are referred to as uh, direct file. If you have a juvenile who is charged with an offense that would be otherwise a criminal action, the, the law then takes a look at that offense and makes a determination of, is this a direct file case or is this a waiver case? A direct file case means that you bypass the juvenile court in its entirety and you go straight to the superior court. A waiver case means that the case would start in the juvenile court, but the prosecutor has the ability to request that the hearing be waived to the superior courts for, uh, for, for a hearing on that. And those are all controlled specifically by statute. Um, the specific offenses that are considered to be direct file, which means that they just bypass the juvenile court altogether. Um, Indiana Code 3130.14 states that the juvenile court does not have jurisdiction over an individual for an alleged act of attempted murder, murder, kidnapping, rape, robbery that results in serious bodily injury or robbery armed with a deadly weapon, unlawful carrying of a handgun if charged as a felony and any type of uh, criminal gang activity related charge, as long as the defendant was at least 16 years of age. So um, if you're 16, 16, 17, even though those cases would normally be considered juvenile offenses, because you are considered a juvenile, if you were charged with any of those offenses, the prosecuting attorney can file directly into the, uh, the superior court and you can be tried as an adult. All of the other offenses fall under the category of what's referred to as a re waiver request to remove them from the juvenile court and try to file them in the superior court as an adult. 
Okay. All right. I appreciate you giving us that clarification. So, I mean, when you look at some of the kind of really stacks up to some of the, you know, the more worse crimes out there that, that, a, you know, somebody can do, let alone a, a juvenile can do, that's what's going to mm-hmm. see a lot of attention. Um, let's look at the rights side of things. Do you find that juvenile proceedings have different rights maybe than adult proceedings in the state of Indiana? Yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. The law requires that juveniles who are in the juvenile uh, justice system receive the same due process rights as adult defendants do. So from that perspective, they are afforded the same constitutional rights. They have a right to counsel. They have a right to, uh, we would refer to it as bail if it were an adult, but in the juvenile system, we would refer to it as a detention hearing. They have the right to determine whether or not they can be detained awaiting the trial. Uh, they have the right to uh, confront and cross-examine witnesses. They have the same discovery rights, believe it or not. You can actually do a deposition in a juvenile case if that is something that you really need to build your defense and build your case off of that. Where I find there to be a significant difference, so there are two pretty sizable differences between the juvenile system and the adult system. Uh, the first is that juveniles do not have a right to a trial by jury. Juvenile proceedings are considered to be confidential by nature. That again goes back to the concept of, you know, we want, we, you know, we recognize that juveniles may not be emotionally mature enough. They may not be mm-hmm. fully developed. We are going to give them additional opportunities to, you know, kind of be rehabilitated and kind of be pointed in the correct direction before yeah. going completely down that road. Uh, yeah, as, it's almost protecting their future if you look at it. Exactly. That way. So as uh-huh. a result, because of that confidentiality, you don't have juries there because on one hand, it's kind of hard to really say that you're getting a jury of your peers as a minor. You know, you're not going to drag a bunch of teenagers to sit on a jury. Um, Likewise, if the entire concept is to allow this, this juvenile to move on and be rehabilitated, you know, having someone say, well, I saw, you know, John Smith, this 15 year old kid who was alleged to have, you know, kicked down a door and smashed up someone's living room. Like that's kind of defeating that. Now I will say that my experience has been that jurors typically within about two or three weeks completely forget about most of the significant details of the cases like names. But again, that's the general concept that we got with that. The second major issue that is different between the juvenile system and the adult system is the juvenile system moves very, very quickly. Um, because of the determination that we are dealing with children, we are trying to rehabilitate them, they are not allowed to drag on forever. Um, Effectively, the time limits for resolving a juvenile case, if the child is in detention, which means that they've had that detention hearing, it's been determined that they need to be held in a secure facility. Basically, they've been denied bond is what we would refer to as an adult. If they've been denied bond, the fact-finding hearing, which is basically the trial in a juvenile system, that has to take place within 20 days. And oh, wow. if you're really if you're up. not in custody, like if they say, okay, you know, we're not going to hold you in custody, we're going to send you back with your parents to await your trial, there's 60 days. Mm. And continuances are not favored. Like you have to have a really, really good reason to convince the trial court judge why you need to continue this hearing. If you if you, if you recall our, our episode from last season about fast and speedy trials, if you still want a fast and speedy trial, commit a crime as a juvenile. 
Don't commit a crime as a juvenile, <laughs> by the way. That's not an endorsement. But if you want to see what a fast <laughs> sure, speedy sure. trial looks like, that's 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 who's still sure. You can you can do you can have a fast trial and it can be confidential as that's long right. as you do it as a juvenile. Just just uh, just not to a jury. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Uh, Jack, look, as we've stated, not only in this episode, but on many episodes in the past, uh, criminal proceedings, law, while it may want to be black and white on, on this and that, it never is. It's very circumstantial based on every case. So my next question, while it might sound a little black and white, here's, you know, I know there's more that you can get into it. Can a juvenile in the state of Indiana be charged as an adult? They can. Um, as we mentioned a few moments ago, there are a series of offenses that by statute, if you are 16 or 17, that would normally have been in the juvenile court, they're considered to be the direct files, the, the attempted murder, the murder, uh, the rape. The case, all other cases can be charged as an adult. There, there is not a, there's not an absolute statutory requirement that says these cases can only be handled in the juvenile system. So if the prosecutor wants to request that a juvenile be charged as an adult, they have to file what's referred to as a request for a waiver. And the court will hold a hearing on that one. And the court would, to, to waive someone as a juvenile to the adult court as part of a discretionary waiver hearing, the court would have to find first that the child was charged with an act that was a felony. So you, you usually will see a lot of juveniles who are charged with uh, what would be misdemeanor offenses, because again, misdemeanors are low-level offenses. We expect that children and juveniles are not doing particularly bad things. Um, but if they were charged with something that would be considered to be a felony, that's the first threshold to it. It's like, it, would this offense have been a felony if committed by an adult? The second thing that the, that the court would need to find is that the felony was heinous or aggravated um, they do give a greater degree of weight to acts that are committed against a person they would against property. So for example, you know, if you beat a person with a baseball bat, that's going to be considered more heinous or aggravated than beating someone's car up with a baseball bat right, for very obvious right. reasons. Mm -hmm. And that it was a part of a repetitive pattern of delinquent acts. So basically, again, mm -hmm. you've had a situation where this person just keeps coming back. They're not learning that yeah. lesson because again, the entire concept is we want the juveniles to have the opportunity to be rehabilitated. It's like, you know, once, right. uh, what's, what's the old saying? Um, you know, once is an accident, twice is a coincidence, three times is a pattern. So you're kind of looking at that mm -hmm. same concept with that. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, good to know. They also have to be at least 14 years of age. Um, and they also have to determine that the child is beyond rehabilitation under the juvenile justice system. So the idea is we've tried everything and nothing has worked, so we're moving you along. So any any act that is filed, as long as it's a felony act, can mm -hmm. be request for waiver. There's also a special provision for waiver on murder. As we discussed, there is that concept that if you're 16 or over, that's a direct file. You know, that, that bypasses the court overall. I am sad to say, well, let me rephrase it. I am pleased to say that we don't have many alleged murderers who are under the age of 16, but we do have them. That is kind of a sad fact. There is a specific provision that as long as the juvenile is at least 12 years of age, they can request waiver to the superior court. So 16 and over goes directly to the superior court. 12, 13, 14, and 15, it will start in the juvenile system, 
but the prosecuting attorney can request that the matter be filed as an adult. Um, and that, again, would just have that same general concept. You know, is this a particularly sure. heinous or aggravated act? Certainly murder is. Um, you know, you don't have the concept of being at least 14, but they carved out a special statutory exception for 12. But the other factors mm -hmm. with regards to is this in the best interest of society? Is this person beyond the rehabilitation of the juvenile system? Those do still apply. Um, mm -hmm. Fortunately, I have not dealt with any of those. I actually did uh, a number of years back. I want to say about four or five years back. I actually did defend a juvenile waiver hearing. Um, oh, that yeah? was that was an interesting case. That was a that was a defendant who. Um, was alleged to have escaped from a secure juvenile detention facility. Like basically he jail broke out of that. Whoa. Um, and we, you know, we had the, we had the hearing on that. The, the state wanted to waive him. He was, um, if memory serves me correctly. I believe that he was 17 when he was alleged to mm. have escaped from the juvenile facility. Um, and we had the hearing, you know, he certainly, he certainly had a pattern of, of juvenile delinquency. He was in juvenile prison. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the state made a very compelling argument that, you know, look, he escaped from the juvenile facility that puts him outside yeah. the bounds of rehabilitation by the juvenile system. But what we were able to successfully argue is that this isn't particularly heinous. It's not particularly aggravated. Um, and those factors were enough to convince the judge, like there's not enough of a statutory justification to, to waive this offense over to the superior court. So, uh, it stayed in the juvenile system. Yeah. Um, we resolved it pretty quickly afterwards. Uh, he went back to finish out his original sentence. And, mm -hmm. um, as far as I'm aware at this point in time, he's hopefully doing much better. Uh, we don't always get sure. follow up calls from the people that we've worked with, but you know, fingers crossed. He seemed mm -hmm. like a good kid. Yeah. There you go. The there you go. Jailbreaking thing. Right, right, exactly. Well, that's an interesting story because it, it makes me think of a, kind of a curveball-ish question to throw it your way. What happens if, if you're arrested as an adult for a crime that happened when you were a juvenile? That is actually a fascinating area of law that's, that's still kind of developing, believe it or not. Um, yeah, most, okay. The most recent decision on this case came down from the Indiana Supreme Court just last year in 2022. And what the Indiana Supreme Court found, and again, is as the standard disclaimer with all these things, is this is a very Indiana-centric show. This is Indiana-centric law. You know, don't go to don't go to South Carolina and say I hired an attorney online. Say you can't charge me with this because they might be able to there. <laughs> sure. What Indiana has found though is that there is absolutely no loophole in the law to uh, prosecute in the adult courts. A criminal act, well, let me try to think the best way of phrasing this. It is impossible to file in the adult court a delinquent act that happened when you were 17 or under if the defendant has reached the age of 21. So if, if you're 22 and at 17 you committed a juvenile act like you know, basic, basic burglary, you know, you broke into a building overnight and, you know, stole some candy bars or something. That's a burglary offense. That's a felony offense. It's not a direct file as a, you know, it's not, it's not part of that list of direct files that would bypass the juvenile courts so would start in the juvenile system. Um, but if they don't find out about it and they don't charge it before you're 21, 
um, you, you're basically, I, I hesitate to say get away with it, but you kind of do. And, and even if they were to catch it after you reach 18, it's questionable as to what the juvenile court may or may not do, because at that point in time, you have aged out of the juvenile system on its first level. Um, so from that perspective, you know, they, they, there's kind of nothing you can do about it. And we have had a couple of yeah. cases um, typically dealing with sexual assault related allegations where the accusation is made after the defendant or the prospective defendant does reach the age of majority, but they were acts that happened when they were juveniles. And there's just really nothing that can be done with those. There's, there's not a loophole. Um, I will give, this isn't something I do very often, but I will give a great deal of credit to the Indiana General Assembly for not trying to fix this loophole. Um, every time something seems to go sure. on the side of increasing the protections that are afforded to persons accused of a crime, usually the general assembly is right there to try to try to try to fix it and make it worse for us. But as of right now, they've not done anything to try to address that situation. So that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, well, as we kind of bring our conversation to an end, I, I think a good spot to end today, Jack would be talking about what the impacts look like for a juvenile if they are uh, convicted. Um, Talk to me about what that process looks like in terms of the conviction. Obviously, it'll, I'm sure it would differ based on the severity of, a, of the crime they're being convicted for. But what the ramifications are long term for that juvenile that's been convicted of a crime? What's, what does that look like? What are the impacts? Well, very definitely your short term issue is, is the punishment aspect of it. Um, much like with the Superior Court, if you were found to be I won't say guilty because, again, that's a criminal term. I think the, the technical term is if you are found to be a delinquent, um, what would happen under those circumstances is the judge would need to make the determination as to what the appropriate punishment for you would be. And much like an adult, that punishment can be incarceration in a secure facility, some form of probation, or some sort of hybridation of it. If the court determines that incarceration is appropriate, the court has the ability to enter what's referred to as a determinate sentence, which means, okay, we are going to hold you for a period of nine months, 10 months, 12 months, whatever it is. Or they can order what's referred to as an indeterminate detention. And an indeterminate detention is decided by the Department of Corrections. The Department of Corrections will do their own evaluation, make their own determination as to what programs are or are not necessary and they will, at that point in time, take custody of the juvenile. And under federal law, which has been applied to the various states, there are specific rules for how you have to house juveniles. The most important one being they have to be segregated uh, by both sight and sound from any adult prisoners. They're not allowed to co-mingle. The idea is that that is a significant security risk, both for uh, the, the jailers, uh, the juvenile especially, other prisoners potentially. Um, and second, again, we, we want these people to be rehabilitated. We don't want them hanging out with hardened criminals. We want them not right. come back. Sure, um, sure. The, the statute allows for, if you are committed by a juvenile court, they can actually hold you up to the age of 23. So wow. even though 18 is when you're considered legally being an adult, if you have an indeterminate sentence, uh, or even a determinative sense, that can hold you up to 23. The, 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 the defendant that I had mentioned earlier, the one that we had defended against the waiver hearing, um, perhaps pettily, 
the Department of Corrections found that they needed to hold on to him for until he was 23. Um, I have seen most of the juvenile cases that I have seen. Typically, once they reach 18, 19, the Department of Corrections determines that they're no longer necessary to be held. So that's kind of your upfront issue with regards to where it is. Your mm -hmm. more long-term consequences are a little bit more difficult to gauge. Um, as I said, officially, juvenile proceedings are considered to be civil in nature. They're not criminal charges. So they don't show up on background checks most of the time. Military checks, like the, the check that the U.S. Armed Forces will do to determine whether or not this person is a good candidate for enlistment, they actually will see juvenile records. Um, and if, as an adult, you find yourself not having learned from your experience as a juvenile and you continue to commit uh, antisocial acts that, uh, that are otherwise criminal, your juvenile history can be used as an aggravating factor to justify a higher sentence. It will not justify a higher filing. So for example, um, under Indiana law, if you have a, if, if you're convicted of a DUI offense and you're charged with another DUI offense within seven years, that gets filed as a felony offense. Um, as a juvenile, if you have a juvenile DUI offense and you pick up another DUI offense as an adult seven years later, that will not be filed as a felony offense. It does not affect the charging level. It can, however, have an impact on what type of a sentence the judge decides to impose. And I have seen judges who will order the mandatory minimum five days in jail, even though it's a misdemeanor offense, or will restrict the license more heavily as a result of it. Um, so those are kind of the two most important long-term yeah. consequences. There is one benefit that juveniles do have as far as their system is concerned that the adults don't, though, and that is in the area of expungement. Um, Indiana's expungement statute for adults is really more of a restricted records access law. Uh, what the expungement statute does for an adult is it just basically will permanently seal the record so it's not accessible to private individuals, but those records are still there. As a juvenile, if you expunge your juvenile history, that legitimately does just destroy it. Like they take it completely out of the database, yeah. they wipe it clean. Um, that's that is a pure, true expungement, and it is one of those things that we do encourage people to do. Um, it just same as we do with any other expungements. Like you know, you don't want this popping up and embarrassing you at a future point in time. And once a juvenile expungement goes through, as far as I am aware. Um, I have never seen a situation where a person's juvenile history came back up after a juvenile expungement. So that's got it. That, but that's kind of the the mid to long range consequences of that. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, hey, the bottom line: don't engage in criminal activity. Uh, but typically, typically the, the safer concept, yes. <laughs> typically the safer concept. Jack, this has been a really good conversation. I think we've shed a lot of light on the concept of juvenile law for our audience out there, you know, covering what it is generally. And then, of course, the different ins and outs throughout the state of Indiana. Uh, Jack, for anybody in our audience today that – uh, let's say a, you know, took something away. Maybe they've got another question for you and your team or B let's say they're seeking representation because they are somebody they know is going through a situation where they could use some help, uh, you know, going through and navigating juvenile law or even an adult court case for that matter. What would be the best way they could get in touch with you and your team to just open up that dialogue and, and see what you guys can do. As always, the best way of reaching our office is by telephone. Uh, our direct line contact information is area code 317-983-5333. 
Uh, we do have multiple operators that are answering our telephone uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, so you're always going to get a live person who's going to, to at least speak with you, make sure that those messages get along to the appropriate paralegals and attorneys. Um, we do handle these cases all over the state. The, the juvenile waiver case that I defended was in Cass County, which is about oh, not quite two hours north of our office here in Indiana. But, uh, you know, juveniles deserve the same quality representation that adults do. Uh, we're happy to do it. Um, and that's the, yeah, the best thing I can recommend is again, as Brian said, don't break the law in the first place, but we understand accidents happen when they do just reach out to us. We'll get you taken care of. Fantastic. Well, Jack, I know you're a busy guy. You've got some cases to prepare for, so we'll let you get back to that, but I uh, appreciate you jumping on board to uh, get kickstarting season two here on the show and uh, looking forward to our next episode with you. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks. And hey, look, we want to take one final moment, as always, and say thank you for stopping by and being with us on the show here today. If you did take something away from today's discussion, you benefited from it in any way, shape, or form, well, make sure you hit that subscribe button then on whichever platform you check this out on today. That way you never miss out on another discussion where Jack and I unpack either a case study or an element of criminal law so that you and yours come out better educated and better for it on the other end. But for Jack, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long today, but we appreciate you stopping by and being with us on Closing Arguments.